Live Beat, the home edition with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. Assalamu alaikum, hello, Allah, and welcome to Live Beats, a home edition with me, Sally Musa. Al Seed is an artist who not only produces breathtakingly lyrical work using Arabic calligraphy, but through the creative process, his projects bring people and communities the world over together, from his hometown of Gabez in Tunisia to Lyon, Cairo, Toronto, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea amongst others. This Ramadan, however, under quarantine, his canvas was a global digital space as he worked as a conductor to bring together in perfect order 49 participants from all over the world to take part in the first ever Zoom artwork that not only created art for a good cause, but also combined music and dance for an uplifting moment that brought joy to all involved and answered the heightened need for interaction under lockdown. As El Cid says, art for him is a pretext, a pretext for human connection and building relationships and community. There is always a bigger vision in mind. The purpose behind his work is summed up in the words of French novelist André Marot, who said, art is the shortest path from one human being to another human being. El Cid took these words and depicted them in his signature calligraphic Arabic strokes and then broke up the artwork into 49 pieces each sent to a person around the world, everywhere from Nigeria, the US, Portugal, Italy, China, Canada, the UAE, France, the UK, the Netherlands, Pakistan, Tunisia, Rwanda, Egypt and Romania. The best part of this moment was not the artwork, but the ambiance, the energy and the love everyone shared during the Zoom call unlike any other. Husband and wife, music artists, Aloe Black and Maya Jupiter's performance was uplifting and inspiring. The lyrics to Aloe's Love is the Answer fit perfectly with the circumstances everyone is living in today. From the Netherlands, sisters Nora Yara and Rosa dance to the music reflecting the joy and the elation throughout the event. For over an hour, everyone was at the same level, in unison, sharing the same human condition. El Cid says it was out of this world. Here he tells me how he came up with the idea and how he managed the intricate technological challenges of the project. That was fun. A friend of mine texted me on Instagram and he said I had a, a birthday party on Zoom. So it would be so cool actually if, if you can create something, you know, like if you can connect people with an artwork. I used Zoom actually like a week before, like twice, and I was playing with this background thing, you know, and I understood like I called him straight away and I said, okay, let me see. So the same day in the afternoon with my team, we cut a piece, we tried, and then we start to understand how the thing was working, you know, like there's different setup on Zoom for it to work. We didn't understand there is also a mirror in my image. So uh, we did a test with, with four people and it worked. I called a few other members of the team. So we're like seven on the call and it worked again. And then I called my brother, sister, brother-in-law. We managed to be 21, but it was crazy, you know. And we spent almost two hours and everybody was like, okay, halas, you know, that's, that's fun for you on your side. But So we did a, a test with 21% and it worked again on Zoom. I had to accept one by one. So for example, if you have the third piece, 
you know, like I need to make sure that the guy who has the second piece on the screen has to be before you. There's a kind of alignment. So I need How to did you work people. out the alignment exactly, especially with that many people, yeah. 49? That's the thing. There is a logic on Zoom that is totally illogic. So it means, imagine on the screen, we had 49 screen. That's the maximum Zoom can propose you, depending on the laptop or the computer that you have. So if you have Intel Pentium Core i5, you can only see 25 screen. Okay. If you have an i7, you can see 49 screen. You know, me, I didn't know that I only had an i5. We did a test with 49 screen, not 49 people. We connected every single laptop, iPad, phone that me and my team had. We managed to have 49. And then I couldn't see 49. So like, uh, and then I had to use my wife's laptop for the project. Me as a first person in the screen, imagine you have seven lines of seven screen. Me, I had the piece number six, which doesn't make any sense, you know? And then the first person that I accept in my call is the piece number seven, which comes at the corner of the screen. And then you have person number three, get the piece number five, and then number four, get four, three, two, one. And then the number eight that on turn the call get the piece number 14, which is here. And it goes like that, actually, it goes like backward. It was tricky. This was, I mean, we understood it like after a few days, actually like after one day. Having people being connected on time and having a good internet connection and oh also gosh. having a laptop. Like, did they know each other, everybody that you'd... No, 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 no. Actually, like the people that I picked, you know, uh, it was difficult to choose, you know, because there is like friends and then there is family. And then there is friend that you meet with work. I want to pick people that I met over the past uh, 10, 12 years, like doing my work, seriously. Because at the beginning I was like, maybe we should ask like big people, people with big followers. And I'm like, it won't be the same, you know, because I don't know them and I don't want them to think I'm using them, you know? So I invited, I give an example, this girl, she was in Portugal at that time. I met her in uh, Brazil six years ago and she was my translator when i was in brazil uh, for a project in 2014 and we didn't see each other like since then but sometimes we talked you know like i think we talked maybe three four times in six years you know but just to say hello hi and then so she was part of the call there were these uh, people from rwanda that i met in 2012 i met them in south africa so we just got reconnected after eight years like in march because we're working on the project with them and then i invited you know some of my collectors People really supported my work over the few past few years. Then we invited Aloy Black. Uh, Aloy Black, you know, the singer. I met him at the TED conference in 2015. And since then, you know, we stayed in touch. And actually, he was the first one that I emailed. He's the first one who said yes, straight away. Him and his wife, uh, Maya Jupiter. That uh, was beautiful. That was so speakers. amazing. The music, because then it just added this whole other layer. And we just, yeah. I love Aloy Black. I love Aloy nice. Like nice. It was perfect for the project, I felt like. Yeah, it was the energy that I was giving, you know, because me, I told him, okay, Aloe, maybe you can sing at the beginning, you know, one more five, six people, and maybe one song at the end, you know, like I didn't want to ask too much, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it was the MC of the thing. Uh, thank God he was there because I was lost, you know, like you have 48 people waiting for you. Everybody has your phone, you know, and I give my people my phone and I give the email and the phone of one guy of my team, Wahid, and people, they text him and they text you and they're like, oh, we're in the waiting room. And I'm like, yes, I know, I can see you. you know? <laughs> and then we had to send the global email, guys, the call started, please wait, you know. Yeah. And you cannot accept everybody like that. I got one guy on the same day, his test didn't work. And then it was just, you know, like finding solution and, and people are here waiting for you. 
And then Aloe Black was like, I understood actually the stress into what I was. And he was like, uh, okay, for example, I'm going to start. And then he started singing. And that was so cool because he didn't stop, you know, and, uh, and people were entering the room. So imagine you enter a room and bam, straight away, you have a music blasting. It's like a party. It's like walking in yeah, exactly. a party. Exactly, it was. That was, and then we had, you know, Nora, Yara, and Rosa, like they're three girls from Netherlands, and yeah, I've been following them for I don't know, like, two years. I just How do you them know them? Because like I saw those girls, and they were amazing. They were fabulous. Yeah, I, I don't know them, you know, like we just online, you know, we chat sometimes, like hey girls, you know, you're the best, and that's it. You know, people they say actually, uh, are we connecting people on Zoom? And uh, Zoom doesn't give you the feeling that you're at the same place. People they all have a different background, you know, so you the distance but having the background of the artwork make you feel that actually everybody's in the same room on the same building you know it looks like oh yes the artwork created this closeness between people and then the fact that we had the music and the performance created another layer they really felt involved and that was the point of it all this was not just you know it, it was cool to create an experience but it was the purpose of that was to, to raise money for two hospitals one in uh, in tunisia in gabes i'm originally from and one in, uh, in Boulogne-Biancourt, the city where I grew up in Paris. And that was the call. I had to do stuff that I never did before. For example, we launched the Lito a few days ago, and uh, yesterday was sold out. So we managed to raise like more than $30,000 that would be split between two hospitals. I think people didn't understand what was the purpose of it. So that's why I had to make this weird video, you know, like, where you, I don't know if you saw my Instagram. I made a weird video where I put the background. I talk like a president. And that's the first time actually I'm talking face to the camera like that. So I think uh, there is something in my communication where I think to, I need to make sure people really understand the purpose of what I do. People thought I just like throw up a party. That was just a pretext to raise the money. El Cid, in fact, created an edition of 49 lithographs from the original artwork used for the project. Half of the proceeds went to the Amboise Paris Hospital in Bologna Biancourt, where he grew up in France. And the other half went to the hospital Mohammed bin Sassi of Gabes, where he is originally from in Tunisia. Coming up next, Elsie tells us what he's learned from the pandemic and how this experience has changed his work. That's next. But first, here's a little bit of Aloe Black's Love is the Answer. Broken hearts everywhere, from stepping on up, we don't care. Somebody tell me what we gonna do. Even though it's plenty to share, people hungry in the streets, it ain't fair. But you don't think about it until it's you. Now I'm gonna say how I feel, and what I want to say is love, the only thing that's real. Right, nobody wins in a fight, but still we play the game. 
95. Live Beats, the home edition with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. Welcome back to Life Beats, my conversation with artist El Cid as we talk art in the age of coronavirus, how this experience has changed his work and what he's learned from the pandemic. This is just like a, a natural progression from all of the art that you do. Is this the first time that somebody's put an artwork like that together on Zoom? Is that, yeah, I, I, I think that's the first time that happened. Yeah, yeah, nobody did it, I think. I don't care about like being the first or the last. Or- I think you've worked in every medium that is possible in art. And it's like, you know, your way of bringing people together. And this is just like the next natural progression. And in lockdown, what else are people going to do apart from digital art and Zoom art? I just thought it was so incredibly brilliant and beautiful. I always say that, you know, I'm not digital art and stuff. It's always something that I was running away from. But it's funny, the piece really exists, you know, like the background. So I had to paint it. I didn't draw it on the computer. I, mean, I don't know how to do this. You don't normally so do digital art. You don't draw on the computer. No. You don't do any of that. No. All of your stuff is freehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always, you know, do it on, on the paper like that. And then I have somebody in my team who have sometimes will vectorize it. For example, the one we did, I painted it. Actually, the real original piece is white. It's not black. Actually, we made some tests with a white calligraphy. It didn't look good, actually, on the background. So then we digitally changed the color of the calligraphy. But the original piece, the piece that we had, is actually it's, it's white. It's my studio. Like I did it at home. I never thought that I would do something like that, you know, because I'm, I think digital art is boring. You know. What I enjoyed it is because I managed to create this kind of uh, human experience, you know, the one that I love when I, I do my art project. And that's why I think I was excited about it. It was really, I think, the fact that people responded to it. I think that what made me was like, actually, that's, that's super cool. Yeah, it is no, just incredibly but, uh, beautiful. But you've done things all over the world where, you know, it's really about bridging cultures, bridging ideas, bringing people together. We're in this world that we didn't imagine about three months ago. What have you learned from the pandemic? I learned that time is a luxury and make me laugh when I hear people on board staying at home. I don't know what to do. I'm like, I think my days are so short. I wish I'd like more time. I think I'm productive in different sense, not only with my work, but I'm a bit OCD. So before like this pandemic, uh, I didn't touch elevator button. I don't pull doors of the bathroom. I, there's a lot of weird things that I don't do. You know, I don't like to shake people's hand. And I do shake people's hand, but that's not something that I like to do. So I do it out of courtesy. If I could avoid, I would never shake your hand. So I wash my hand like I think, 20 times a day. In the metro or the bus, I don't hold things I like. So yeah, so and then at home, I think the first thing we did, we just cleaned up the house like crazy. We organized everything. And then I think after two weeks, I started working, like getting back to my art, thinking, you know, and speaking with the team and preparing new projects. We were working on for a while that we had to put on hold because of, you know, circumstances. And then I want to redefine why I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, and uh, making sure that art is a real pretext for something bigger than not just creating beautiful art pieces that people say like, ah, oh, beautiful, and people take selfies in front of it. If you go to a community, most of the time I create an art piece, people enjoy it. What do they win out of it? What does the community, for example, when you look at Cairo, we did a project, you know, people start knowing them, they heard about them, oh, it's cool. Thanks to those people, otherwise our city will be uh, like a garbage. Then me, like people celebrated my artwork and they're like, oh, thank you. Amazing. 
Bravo LC, you put light on those people, but then what happened? What is the real outcome of this? We did a book, we sold it, hopefully we're going to build the park for the kids inside the neighborhood. What I'm saying is, most of the time it's me who win, you know, not the people on this side. You know what I mean? We love to think on the way of saying, okay, I go to places, the art will just be a way to enter these places and maybe install or do something that can help this community or people from the community to sustain. So we're just thinking of a model right now, how we can do this. I cannot go deeper on the details, but we have an idea of what we want to do. The thing is like to not just pass. The thing is that, you know, because I pass, I create my artwork, the artwork stays, and then I come back to the place sometime. Perception, I think, is one of the biggest exceptions. You know, I'm going there and I'm always in touch with them, you know, but... Uh, this is no, what you're no. saying actually is just so deeply important because, you know, this time is making a lot of people think about, well, I hope it's making people think about deeper impact. And when you talk about your artwork like that and, you know, what is actually the long lasting impact of what you're doing, yeah. that is a really yeah. big question. Yeah, I feel that's my position. Some artists they will say like, I just do it because I want to do it. You know, like this is my self-expression and I don't want anything from people I don't want them to take anything, you know. I think it's bigger than us. We'll be selfish today to think uh, differently than before. The world before this was a bit weird, you know, because now, like, I don't know if this will continue. I think, you know, people, they forget. And that's why in Arabic we said, like, uh, insan, the human being, the roots of his world is like Nasa, like the one who forgets. That's, uh, insan that's a Yeah. So I don't know how it will be. So yeah. people will forget. When everything becomes normal, I don't know if people would care or not. It's a tricky question. You wake up, you realize stuff that we just watched this video of uh, when we did the, you know, the minaret in 2012. Yes, in of Gapest, course. There was a, an old man called Shadley. He used to come, actually. I didn't speak with him, but when I was painting, I always used to see a guy coming at the same hour after like four or five, just because we did during Ramadan, just before Maghreb. It was funny. And he used to look like that, stand and just go. And I was like, this guy is so weird. You know, like uh, he come every day at the same time. And then... Some people from my team, they start seeing him, then they start talking with him. And the guy invited her, us to his house, you know, and the guy lives in a palm grove in Gabes, you know, so he's a total autosufficient. He doesn't buy anything. He doesn't do anything. Everything that he eats or do, he has his own pharmacy. So pharmacy with all the flowers that he may grow and plants. And we were like watching, like we never showed this video of Shelley. And the guy says in 2012, I say, I hope the youth will get beaten in the head, you know, like and beaten in the back and they will live like a difficult time. Then they will understand the value of stuff. They will understand the value of work. They understand the value of money. They will understand the value of the health. And the guy said that eight years ago. And that's so funny because he said, he speaks and then he's like, I'm sorry, I'm going to say something. I hope you don't get mad at me. I wish the youth, you know, many of the youth of the South, it was like, I wish the youth the bad. I wish them something bad, you know? Because that's the only way they can wake up from their craziness. They go to some farm and I see the olives not even picked up from the tree, you know, and it's so mad. People don't care. They don't give the value to agriculture anymore. And that was powerful, you know, and I think that was so relevant to our time. And the guy said that eight years ago. People will wake up. People, I think they would love to change, you know, and, and I think some people will just come back. And you see it. You see it. I went to Carrefour last week here in Monolo Femurates. And have you watched the Jumanji with Robin Williams? The one that came in the 90s? Yeah. yeah. You know, when all the rhinoceros, they come out of the living room and I swear it was, Carrefour was like Jumanji. I was like, we were like civilized. Like a few days ago with our authorization, it was crazy. And then I left. I couldn't stay at Carrefour. 
I hope something good will come out of this. I hope for this, but uh, we don't know. Coming up next, Elsie talks the change that he wants to see in the world after this is all over and what role art can play in the vision of a new existence. Pulse 95. Live Beats, the home edition with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. It's Life Beats on Pulse 95 and I'm in conversation with artist Elsie. The pandemic has caused economic devastation across the world and it's caused people to question whether we should be prioritizing art at all. El Cid has a brilliant answer to this question of whether art is necessary. But first I ask him about what his vision is for a new world post-COVID-19 and the role that art can play in it. This is the big question, exactly. What is the kind of the new normal everybody wants things to change you know mm-hmm. how do you want to see things change after this is all over i think the change has to come like from every single person from their own we have to think differently the way people get mad at other people doing something that they actually even them are doing you know like you're outside and you say like oh there's so many people out you know like people don't respect but you're out as well you know what i mean <laughs> And then you complain because there is no flower. And then when you go, you buy flower, you buy 10 packs, you know, because you're scared not finding flower the next time. And I think we should have like this more empathic way toward other people and also stop judging from the first, uh, you know. We don't know. I think we should just come back to being human. Where I live, I don't have this neighborhood relationship, you know. I don't have a neighbor where I can knock at his door and say, can I borrow your mixers or uh, your like sugar? Come eat at home, you know, it's Ramadan. I wish for the city to be more connected. This is a small city, Dubai, but we're lacking a, a sense of human connection. That's what I believe. What kind of role can art play in building that human connection? The quote that I use, you know, for the artwork was a quote from André Malraux, who is a French writer. And he said, art is the shortest path between one human being from another one. Artists have this responsibility, maybe bringing people together. In a way, I'm not saying all of us who have to do this, but in my work, this is what I noticed and I enjoyed it. That's why I keep doing it. Yeah, finding way to connect people. And yeah, I saw that this Zoom project managed to do this. When I say connect is we had people from so many social backgrounds, so many nationality, religion. You know, we had like Muslim, Hindu, like Ate, Jewish. We had black, white. We had people who were like really rich, I mean, people well off, I guess, and comfortable financially, and what people who, yeah, I got one kid, you know, one kid, I mean, he's more than 20, uh, that I never met. I wanted him to be part of the call. He's a, he's a kid that I speak with him on Instagram, you know, a guy from Nigeria. So we, he's an artist, so sometimes he asks me some advices. I'm like, yeah, that would be cool, actually, to have him on the call. And then he was sitting with Aloy Black, who was in LA, and sitting with uh, Beatrice Fussardi, who was in Italy, and... He was also with a friend of mine, Jean-Paul. We did the project a few years ago and was the head of uh, deputy chairman of uh, the auction house, Philips. You know, so, and everybody was at the same place, at the same level. And uh, I think art makes you, it brings back the humanity and put everybody at the same level because it's about emotion. It's not about everybody perceive art. I think we all have the same reaction toward art, which is creating, you know, like an emotion. And emotion is what makes us human. I think that's what brings us together and puts us at the same level, you know. And then you have COVID-19 that put you, put everybody at the same level as well, you know. So, 
So maybe COVID-19 is an art piece, I don't know. Yeah. That is a different way of looking at it. COVID-19 yeah. is an art piece. You know, I had like people from my family who've been affected by this. I have like friends of mine who were sick. So uh, I know it's serious. I'm really taking it super seriously. Wow. Are they doing okay? Yeah. I mean, I have like an extended cousin. He was in a coma like for almost 10 days. And a friend, him and his wife, they got sick. My wife's friend, she got sick. And her baby was also tested positive. Uh, mm. Actually, two friends of mine in France does that. that. So to COVID-19? Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's very serious. It is, you know. It's funny, you know, to see people like, I'm not touchable. I'm stronger than this. The virus can take you at any time. You know? We have to be safe. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. At this time, the virus has affected people in so many ways. You know, we talk about the health, the loss of life, and that is so important. But also, economically, people are being impacted in unbelievable ways too. Some people might be saying, well, you know, art doesn't really have a place here. We have way more important and urgent things. What would you say to that? Of course, yeah, art is not a necessity. I would say that. That's what people look at it. Today, just remove all those artists, movie makers who did movies that you can watch freely. I mean, you can watch for a dollar per month on Netflix. Remove all those artists, writers who wrote books that can entertain you and take you out of your crazy bubble. Remove all those artists, musicians, make some music that so you can uh, chill out a bit when you're getting crazy. Uh, remove all those artists who give free like some drawing, coloring book for kids so you can entertain them. You know, remove all those people. Look at it if art is not a necessity. If you remove all the art, I'm sure like in every city of the world, people would have gone and doing a riot because this is what keep people sane. So that's why you know when people make me laugh. Oh yeah, we don't need it. Yeah, you don't need it, but. Uh, you are, you are watching Netflix five hours a day. You are playing music. You are coloring book to relieve the stress that you have in your uh, inside you because you're staying at home. And I think there is a good way we have to look from a different scope. And that's why I was part of a call. Yeah, one month ago, somebody asked: Is art a necessity or a luxury? Ask yourself. Ask yourself. Remove all of this. What you will do? You won't do anything. You'll be staying at home like and be like crazy and. Super crazy, actually. That's for me yeah. a weird question. That's and you an saw important it, you know, one, yeah. Not a weird question, but a weird uh, topic, you know, a weird statement, because I saw people saying it, you know. Like what we created last week with dance, music, and painting was just amazing. And I think people told me, they, they told me like we had the smile for hours, you know, even us, you know, like in the whole team. Like everybody went crazy when we watched the video. We're like, wow, this is just insane. And me, I stopped watching it, you know, because I'm telling you the first day I was like watching it over and over. And I'm like, I just want to forget this moment and maybe, uh, and every time I was watching it, I was like, I had like goosebumps, you know, like when I see the girls like dancing and Aloe Black is, is raising his voice, it's crazy. And you see people dancing and it was amazing. Yeah, it's a necessity. You know, we need it. We need it. Coming up, El Cid talks the impact that the creative process has on the communities that he works with. And he talks reconnecting to his farming roots in Tunisia. That's next. You're listening to Pulse 95. Live Beat, the home edition with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. El Cid is an artist who doesn't only work to create something beautiful, but sees art as a human experience that connects people and communities through the creative process. The stories, the transformation, the change, the open dialogue that comes from the creation of each artwork is central to his purpose. 
Whether it's painting, sculpture or embroidery, he adapts each piece to tell the story of the people that he works with. In one of his most famous projects, Perception, El Cid questioned the level of judgment and misconception society can unconsciously have upon a community based on their differences. In the Cairo neighborhood of Manshiyat Nasr, the Coptic community of Zaraib has been collecting the trash of the city for decades and developed the most efficient and highly profitable recycling system on a global level. Still, the place is perceived as dirty, marginalized and segregated. To bring light to this community and their vital work, he created a breathtaking anamorphic piece that covers almost 50 buildings with the final artwork only visible from a certain point of the Mokatta mountain. The artwork displays the words of Saint Athanasius of Alexandria, a Coptic bishop from the 3rd century that says, anyone who wants to see the sunlight clearly needs to wipe his eyes first. In another project from June of 2019 titled The Journey, and Seed visited the refugee camp of Ain al-Hilwa in South Lebanon and met a group of artisans who were preserving the art of Palestinian embroidery or tatriz. His idea was to paint a few murals all around the camp and then ask the women to reproduce them into Palestinian embroideries that could later be sold. Here he talks the impact that the creative process has had on the two communities in these projects. And me, I see so many people that are not linked to art and people get so excited. This is so funny. Like seriously, me, you know when you go to places, I always say like I bring them into my sect and then they start looking at the city in a different way. In Tunisia, when we were like, the most funny one was in Ain al-Hairwi when we did this project in the refugee camp in South Lebanon. We did this project with a refugee woman, we do like tattoos. You know, so we painted seven walls inside the neighborhood, inside the refugee camp and then they reproduced the walls in a, in a Tatris. And then we sold the Tatris during the Abu Dhabi art fair with 81 Design, which is a charity organization based in Abu Dhabi. And it was so funny because at the beginning, like, oh, so we need to look for the walls inside the camp. So we walk, like, like, what is this? I'm like, no. And then I say, like, this is the kind of wall we need to look for. And then they understood, you know, like this kind of wall, not clean, a bit broken, small, with a nice background, a nice environment. And then the next day, like every time we were working, I was there's this wall. And then like, oh, I was on my way home, I found this wall, come, come, come. And you see people getting excited for stuff that nobody will be like, oh, I'm looking for a wall. You know, like if you remove this out of the context, but then because they know that they felt, you know, like they had this experience of painting and people coming and people, I remember, bring us falafel and people stopping. And then it creates an excitement to break the routine. Yeah, with certain perception in Egypt, how you know, we get welcomed by people. People, they feel the need that because you're beautifying their place, you know, because when you go to a place like where not a lot of people go, people feel, I think, that you're giving them importance, you know, and they appreciate that. And that's how you see the excitement. I'm telling you every place I want, and I don't want to say the dangerous places because people, they defy them as dangerous, you know, for example, the favela or the, or the slum of the township of Cape Town, like Philippi, where I went a few years ago. I never felt in danger. I was more scared to go to Houston, Texas to paint a few years ago than to go to uh, Peshawar. I didn't go to Peshawar, but I was going to go. But yeah, I'm going to a slum, I'm going to a favela, I'm going to Manchetna, in Cairo. Not at all, because I, I really believe like we have perception of places and, and people have perception of us as well. And uh, 
it's fun when actually both perceptions change. You know, yeah. and I think in Egypt, this is why I saw it the most, you know, because I have a friend of mine, an artist called Amara Boubakar. I invited him to the wedding. I was invited there. I mean, two years after we did the project and then I had my guest list as well. So I had like a friend that I invited to the wedding, like as I was like a member of the family. And I remember he came with a friend of him and he was like, I live in Cairo. I've been here for years. I have like friends and family in the city. And I don't even thought of even coming one day to this neighborhood. And I see you like chilling and being part of this party and people kissing you like you are a part of the neighborhood. And that was fun. And I think we reached this level because there was a kind of trust. I think the trust that I they took with me, they understood it after. Over there, they, everybody's connected. They saw Facebook, they saw Instagram, they saw interviews, they saw the news. And so they heard me talking. And I tried to avoid this kind of sensational, oh, we went. And I think that's where they really started trusting me. And that's why, you know, like we came back so many times. Me, uh, after the project, I think the past four years, I think I went six or seven times back there, you know. Last time was last July, you know, and uh, I was on the phone, like two days ago, I was on the phone with uh, somebody there, you know, like one of my friends, and he told me it's, it's quite difficult because it's been two months, they're not working. They're not collecting the garbage. Wow. So That is hard, yeah. That still has to be one of my favorite artworks of all time, still. Uh, um, uh, thank you. But also, you know, you alluded there to the impact that even that artwork has had on those people. Mm. I mean, you know, art is, it's about bringing out the best in us. It is like the most beautiful aspects in us, but it also humanizes as well. There are these two aspects that I don't think we have ever needed more. You've been doing this art for years and I've been loving and following your art for years, but I don't feel like we've needed what you do more than we do right now giving value where value is due, where we are missing, like the old man said in Gabez, that there is value not being yeah. placed in the right places. So people forget about that. And I think this uh, pandemic is a way to rebalance. You know mm. what I mean? I see stuff, you know, like there is a, you know, like you always delay and project that you want to do and you're like, I'm going to do the theater and stuff. And and then you see like it's time, you know, this time should make you reflect on what you are and why you're doing what you do. And coming back to the roots, you know, coming back to what is essential. My family are farmers in Tunisia. So my dad, before I went to France, was a farmer. You know, I always had this strong connection, you know, with Gabes and uh, now it's been almost yeah, two years. Like I'm going back to being a farmer. I'm not, I'm not a big farmer, but I bought some land that used to belong to my great grandfather. I will show you on, on Zoom. It's cool. So oh, wow. I, I bought some, some olive trees, you know, and uh, and every, uh, every October, November, you know, I take the kids there and we pick up the olives and we press it. So we make olive oils, you know, olive oil, like the real way, like the traditional way, you know, like with the stone, the granite stone, that crush the leaves and everything. So it's, uh, the cold it's fun. Press. This, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the cool part of it. You know, the cool part is, is realizing that this is so important. You know, there's a real connection with the soil, a real connection with the land. And that's not something I thought that was cool back in the days. Maybe my dad was not into it as well. You know, I think when you retire, they really came back to taking care of the land that we have. I tried once. I just went to pick up the olive with the kids, like for during the holiday. And then the guy was selling a piece of land. And when I went to see it, the guy was like, actually, he asked me who was my dad. And then he said, like, he used to belong to my great grandfather. So actually, he's the brother of my grandmother who sold it, you know. So now we're back to the root. So now, like, my kids are saying, oh, this is our great, great, grandfather you know 
So like centuries, you know, like uh, olive tree or like more than 100 years, which is a bit crazy. That is truly amazing. That is so beautiful. And I love that, that you're doing that. And yeah, my husband's family is from, they're Palestinian Jordanian. So when we go to, back to Jordan, we were going to go in the spring. I love everything. seeing the land and I love seeing everything that they grow in their gardens. And that was going to be my joy this spring, but it didn't happen because of everything. That's important. I think it's important also to, you know, to reconnect the youth with this. You know, when you have kids that doesn't know that fries come from potato. Exactly. That's because it's real and people, they forget this. And for me, I'm so proud, you know, when I see my kids, you know, Maya, she's nine and Hamza is seven. They can explain you the process of cold press. Wow. They yeah, they tell you, they know exactly what is it. That is um, impressive. This, I love that. They're so involved into it. When we wait each box of olives, you know, like it's uh, a picture like Maya, you know, like she's right. She has, you know, a book and she writes like box number one and she put how many kilo and then, you know, and then I even taught her to put that on Excel, you know, so yeah, expect uh, uh, olive oil brand LC the like soon, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, That's my, great. So, yeah, it will be fun. But in Tunisia, we have, uh, we have figs, we have uh, grapes, we have almonds, we have pomegranate and olives. So, yeah. So. It's like heaven on earth. It is so beautiful. Coming up next, LC talks identity and we hear more about his plans to reconnect with his hometown of Gabes in Tunisia, as well as his farming roots, both literally and figuratively. Keep it here on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Live Beat, the home edition with Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. In 2012, when El Cid painted the minaret of Jaramosk in his hometown of Gabes in South Tunisia, he never thought that an art piece would bring so much attention to his city. Initially, he was just looking for a wall in his hometown, and it happened that the 57-meter minaret, which was built in 1994, had remained grey for 18 years. When El Cid met the imam of the mosque for the first time, and he told him what he wanted to do, the imam responded, thank God you finally came. For years, he was waiting for somebody to do something on it. The most amazing thing about this imam is that he didn't even ask the artist anything. No sketch, no question of what he was going to do on it or write. For the minaret, El Cid used a timeless verse from the Quran that has never resonated more than it does today. Oh, humankind, we have created you from a male and a female and made you into nations and tribes so that you may know one another. It was a universal call for peace, tolerance and acceptance coming from a place that has suffered from misrepresentation in the media. The local community was proud to see the minaret getting so much attention from international press all around the world. For the imam, it was not just a painting. It was deeper than that. He hoped that this minaret would become a monument for the city, attracting people to its forgotten place of Tunisia. The universality of the message, the political context of the height of the Arab Spring and the artistic challenge all reunited the community. Shahja Sultan Saud al-Qasimi, the founder of the Barjil Art Foundation, played a pivotal role in sponsoring the project. Al-Sid has been reconnecting with his homeland and has plans to highlight the beauty of its nature and produce 
using his farming heritage as the basis for his next project to connect people. My wife's grandfather he has a farm you know, with almost the same thing that we have, you know, and that's uh, it's important that we reconnect, you know. Yeah, uh, with, 100%. Uh, with the, I'm talking to you, but I'm drawing, so I'm going to show you what I draw to these weird characters. Oh, that is so great. Who are you drawing? I don't know. I don't know. Drawing like that. I, I love to draw faces. I mean, people don't know that, but uh, I can paint faces. Are we going to see any artworks of like portraits from you? Because you just don't. I have like portraits, you know, uh, I think my team, everybody uh, in my team, I think they have a, a portrait of themselves. Last time I was in Tunisia, I was sitting in a cafe and I had like some watercolor and everybody was chilling and I was like drawing everybody like, and then that's so funny because we have a studio in Tunisia and then each of them, they had it, you know, they put it on their wall in their office. So that's funny. <laughs> that's yeah. so great. I love it. I love your calligraphy, but I'd love to see some of the, the portraits as well. I don't know if that is something that you're going to go into. What is next for your art? I want to know. Tell us what is happening with you, your art, what direction are you going in? What's going on? I'm working a new project. I cannot say what is it. Hopefully we're launching the movie Perception this year. Now like it's just a contractual thing, you know, with people who are going to distribute it. So now we really focus on this new project. We wanted to do earlier, but with the COVID-19 it's a bit difficult. I'm not going to say where is it, but I mean, I give some tips. If you check my Instagram over the past year, this guy is preparing something there. And so it's I a physical it's a thing. Cool. It's a physical place. Yeah, yeah. a physical place. It's a, it's a cool project. It will be at the same scale of, when I say scale, I'm not saying the same thing, but um, in terms of scale, it will be something like perception. You know, like uh, those kind of big, crazy artistic challenge. It's not going to be like an anamorphic piece. Like you see, it's nothing like that. Not the same topic, not the same place at all, not the same community, but uh, something that I think it's time for myself to challenge, for me to change myself. And that's what we're working on for the past year. There is a lot of stuff that I want to do, but sometimes I wish I had more time and more money. Look, that's, it might sound weird, but sometimes I wish I was a billionaire. Not to say, oh, I'm going to buy a Lamborghini, but just to be like, oh, let's go do this crazy project. And then you just go and you just do it without even thinking of it, you know what I mean? But still with the impact, not just going doing crazy things and like, oh yeah, like was, we did this, look at me. Just to be like, okay, we can create impact some places. And then also focusing on a more personal project, you know, family and stuff. And uh, I think it's important, you know, and my farm in Tunisia. You know, Sally, uh, wait, I don't know, maybe one or two years or three, then you're gonna see my olive oil being sold. And I make sure I offer you one bottle. You know, I would love to have people coming to my city, Gabes, you know, like that's not a touristic place, but it's a beautiful place. And I would love to create stuff like that, you know, inviting people to farms. And I think people would love to understand what is it picking up olives and what is it making your own olive oil and what is it learning how to bake bread. And, you know, like there's so many stuff that you can learn. And I think it's uh, it could be interesting. I think it would be amazing. I love that. I want to be there. Like as soon as this travel thing is over. I want to go yeah, visit Gabba's. Okay, please, please. And I still have the key. Uh, actually, I need to ask Sultan. No, I don't have the key because I gave the key of the minaret of the mosque. For, you know, the imam gave me the key of the mosque and the key of the minaret. Because you cannot go in, on top of the minaret without opening a door. Sultan in 2012, you know, he sponsored the project we did on the minaret. And then the imam gave me the, the key of the mosque and the key of the minaret. And then I never gave it back. So I kept it. You know, I remember I used to have a chain. You know, I, I used to put the key on my, on my neck. So there is paint on the kitchen uh, where there is a key 
And so after the project, I offered Sultan a, a kind of frame with a, the sketch of the minaret and the key of the minaret and also the paper because I wrote a verse of, from Quran. So the, the photocopy of the page of the Quran, you know, that I used. And, uh, I put that the frame, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I would love to, you know, I think so we still have the key of the minarets. I can still take people, you know, up on the 13th floor of the minaret so they can see the whole city. How amazing, yeah, so how beautiful. So, but you have to go and get it off Sultan, is that right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I have a spur key in the mosque, so. Oh, good. <laughs> every time I go to Gabes, they open me the door, you know, like, they're so happy. Wow, that is just so beautiful. That is amazing. Are we going to see more digital art from you, more Zoom artworks where you're doing more of that, or? Oh, it's, it's boring. <laughs> it was cool once, you know, like. That's it, you're you're then, done. you need to move then, on. Yeah, but then you become the Zoom artist, you know. It's, uh, yeah. it's like everything. You do it once and this is enough, you know, like uh, the name, you know, like when I did the minaret, all the mosques of the world from France to China, they were like, oh, come paint our mosque, you know, and like, that's not the point. When I did perception, everybody's like, oh, please, we have this, can you paint a few buildings, you know, and make what you did in Egypt? I'm like, that's not the purpose. I don't repeat myself, you know. Because I think each piece is symbolic from itself, you know, and then, we're not doing like a mass production. You know, I don't want to be the painter of the minaret of the mosque. I don't want to be oh, the Zoom artist. That would be the worst thing. Hey, Elsie, the Zoom artist. So. I heard you that you don't even call your stuff calligraphy anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you call I it? I, what, do we call, what, do, what do you call what you do? I think it's, it's art. I think calligraphy is a medium. You know what I mean? Mm. Let's take calligraphy. So calligraphy is calligraphy and graffiti. What is graffiti? It's painting in the street with a spray can. It's not with a brush. Like graffiti artists, they were never painting with brush. It was with a spray can. So when you do a calligraphy on a piece of paper, that's not a calligraphy. When you paint with a brush, that's not a calligraphy. I'm sorry, you know? And then this world became so fancy and so, and people think, ah, oh, it's so cool, calligraphy. And some journalists, sometimes they think they found the word calligraphy, graffiti. Oh, calligraphy. And you know, and I'm like, guys, like, it lost its whole purpose, its whole meaning. And people think it's a new world when the world has like more than 40 years. You know, like there was a show in the 80s called Calligraphy. People in New York, they used to call, they had the word called Calligraphy. And people forget that. And so for me, there's no meaning behind it. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. And so I don't call myself, I'm like, I'm an artist who use calligraphy as my medium. What we did on Zoom was not calligraphy. I painted a canvas with a brush. There's no spray paint at home, not in the street. We cut it on Photoshop and then we put it as a background on a digital application. And that's it. It's no graffiti in that. Yeah, you're I right. Started with graffiti. 100%. I started with graffiti. So that's my background. But I think people, they like to put you in boxes, you know. And, uh, and you hate and boxes. Yeah, now, like if I hear all the people, want the way they describe my work, I will be graffiti, calligraphy. Tunisian, Arab, revolutionary, street artist. Like, you know, like they put all this. Some people, they think that I started painting during the revolution in Tunisia, which is not true. So people, they start my work there. I do sculpture. I do work on paper. I love to paint in the street. We do light installation, digital art. You know, so I think it's, uh, artist is enough. You know, why do you need to... And also French, Tunisian, everybody always need to bring my nationality as well. Why? Do you, Jeff Koons, I don't know where is he from, you know, do you mention his nationality? Anybody? I don't understand why do you need to put my nationality. 
where does it make sense? Back in the days, yes, when I was like, claiming my quest of identity, yes. But today, why? Yeah, I'm Tunisian and French, but it doesn't make me... It's not only this that define me. Yeah. And uh, I think it's wider and deeper than just the name of a country. Coming up next, El Cid talks identity and the surprising jobs that he's had over his lifetime that have formed who he is today. This is really fascinating. That's next. You're, You're listening, listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Live Beat, the home edition with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. Welcome back to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. I spoke to El Cid about identity and the need for us to embrace every rich layer of our multifaceted stories. Identity is a whole other ballgame. Even if they define you, still, you're not Tunisian enough, you're not French enough, you're not, you know, whatever enough. I'm, you know, I'm yeah. not Arab enough and I'm not Western enough and, yeah. and all the rest of it. I remember there is a guy in a uh, in taxi in France. He was like, I oh, know you're not Tunisian. Well, I think I was going to get off the taxi. I went crazy with him. I know my country better than you because I'm saying, yeah, but you're born here, you grew up here, so you don't know what it is to be Tunisian in Tunisia. I said, ah, wow, there's only one condition. So the way you lived was the only way of being Tunisian. This yeah. is, you know, where art comes in as well to kind of deal with that complexity. Things are not as simple as you would like to make them be, you know, placing things in boxes like that. There are beautiful subtleties and complexities to identity and to life and to humanity and to existence that yeah. I think your art and art can speak to, right? Yes, I hope, you know, I think so sometimes. Uh, but uh, I think there's layers, people forget that this is layers that we add, you know, and I think every part of our life is a layer that you add to your identity. And I think the way you are, you were born in Australia, so you know, no, I was born in Basra, in Iraq. That's where I'm originally from. But I never lived okay. there. I lived in Kuwait until I was seven. And then I moved to Australia after that. I knew there was Australia somewhere. Yeah. And uh, so the fact that you were in Australia, that's part of your identity. Um, that's home for me. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that you're doing what you're doing today, like hosting a radio show, you don't even realize it, but make had a layer to your identity that you don't know. And the funny thing is, one day, if you meet, I don't know, if you go to like a, a radio host conference, this identity, that's part of your identity will come up. You'll be like, yeah, me too, I'm a radio host, you know? And then that's how I see it. You know, me, for example, I used to be a b-boy, I used to break dance. So I relate to this community. So this is a part of my identity that I can share with people who speak the same language. People would never break dance, I never like dance. When I say dance, not in a club, when I'm telling you about going in the street, and dancing, you know, and meeting people that you never met, and then be, those people become your best friend because of dance. You relate to this, and that's a layer, another layer, and all the stuff you know that you add. And so, every I think experience that you have in your life build the new layer that make you what you are today. Depending on where you are, or what time you are of your life, you will claim this identity. When I was doing the perception project, I claimed I was a garbage collector. Because when I was younger, I was a garbage collector in my city. I worked. I would send you on. Is that really true? No, not really. I, I work. I collect the garbage in my town in France. Like it, it was a summer job. Yeah. You did. I done. Yes, yes, yes. I done. I, mean, I, I should have picture. I, I put them in archive in my Instagram. This yeah. is me on the back of the truck. No way. No uh, way. Look, I'm in front of the truck. Wow. So uh, yeah. 
that was fun. So, I mean, I can relate to it in a way. For me, I'm like, when I go to Egypt, I'm like, yes, you know, me too. I, I worked, I did your job. I mean, not as, as they do it, but I know what it was actually. The feeling of people looking at you because you're the one who collect the garbage. I mean, at this time, I didn't care when I was younger for me. The fun part, me, why I did the garbage collector in, in Paris, in my city, it was because it was super well paid and you were five hours a day from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. And I really wanted to catch, you know, like being on the back of the truck. That was, I think for me, that was the coolest part. No. <laughs> I think that was only for that. I did weird choice in my life for weird uh, reason, but I think I did the garbage collector just because I think like the back of the truck for me, I was like, I was always like, that's so cool. Those guys standing, holding it. Like, yeah. That is amazing. That is a bit that I actually did not know. That is super interesting. Oh my gosh. See, that's the thing. The thing that people don't know about you, the things that people don't know about us, and it's always changing. It's never ending. And, and that's the beauty yep. and the journey of life, really, isn't it? I think it's important. Also, it gives you another um, vision and perception on people. When I was younger, I, I didn't care how hard it was, but I was like, I really want to. And I, I regret I don't have a picture of all of them, you know, because I used to document everything. And this, for example, the thing beside me where I sleep, nightstand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have like a small thing, you know, like with stuff from the kids and I have a, my uh, McDonald's sign. You know, I used to work in McDonald's. You know, my badge, you know, with my name here. So I used to work for McDonald's. So for like yeah, for a year in France as well. I did the garbage collecting thing. I did, um, you know, the paper boy, the guy who give the newspaper in the street, like in front of the metro. Yeah, uh, yeah. You serve this newspaper for 20 minutes, 20 minutes in France. I work as a, the guy who collect the luggage in the hotel. I did this. It, it was weird because I slept in the hotel three years ago in the hotel where I used to work back in the days in Paris. You know, we checked in at night and there was a guy. I remember he was working at this night shift and the guy was still here after like 15 years and I was so sad and me I recognized him I said Jamel and the guy didn't remember me because I worked like for six months there so then yeah coming back after 15 years into the same hotel and finding the same guy working there and I was so happy to see him and then I think uh, it was not the same for him because it's like oh man ah, you work here 15 years ago and me I'm still here doing the night shift and you now you check in in the hotel you know so it was uh, I regretted so much after to have uh, say hello to him I work in the circus what? Yeah. <laughs> now I work in a circus for three months in 2004. Yeah, yeah, I was feeding elephants and tiger. I was working with the traveling circus in south of France. My wife is laughing, but this is true. <laughs> when kids under age of 18 were doing something, instead of sending them to jail, they created the program called CER, Education Reinforced Education Program. So they used to send them in places where they would be like tamed in a way. You know, they're gonna go, come back to. To real life. So they used to send them with the, like, I don't want to say gypsy, you know, like with the Les Gens du Voyage, who were like having circus. And me, I was like an educator. So I was in charge of two kids. I had my van and my, and the caravan that I attached on the back of my van. And we were traveling for three months, like staying two days in each city, in small villages in France. So every two days we come, we build the chapiteau, we installed everything, and then we have our costume. We're like the host. So we host people but we were feeding the tigers, uh, feeding the elephant, the llamas. It was fun, you know. From art and identity to lions, tigers, and bears. And next, Elsie talks food and his passion for cooking. That's coming up. 
You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Live Beat, the home edition with Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. El Seed has a passion for people and a passion for life, so it was no surprise for me to learn that he loves to work his culinary magic in the kitchen as well and can often be seen cooking up a storm there. Here he shares some of his favorite dishes and schools me on the origins of a North African breakfast favorite. I love to host and I'm the one who cook at home. You're the one that cooks? Uh, yeah. What do you love to cook? What's your favorite thing? You can do whatever you want. I can do from lasagna to pizza to Tunisian food to wow. French That's food. Wow, that's impressive. I did mukhiya last week, I did bamia. I do all kind of soup, you know, Tunisian soup and those French weird velouté. What's like your favorite Tunisian dish that people don't know that everybody should try? Tunisian dish, I mean, there's so much. I mean, everything is good in Tunisia. Yeah, the bricks are good. You know, the bricks is a kind of, I hate to compare that to sambusa because I think the sambusa is an Indian brick. Yeah, yeah. It's triangular like that. Yeah. And it's a thing. We have the Tunisian kefta as well. We, I mean, yeah, but you make it triangular when you fold the pastry. Yeah, yeah. so you have that. I mean, it's parsley and onion and garlic and... Uh, and eggs and flour and then in pastry. You fold it into a pastry. Yeah, and then you fold it, you fry it, and super good. The Tunisian luchia, that's only Tunisian people who like it. You know, I love How it. How do they make but, it? Uh, it's a dish that would take for 24 hours to cook. So let's say you start today at 8 p.m., you eat it tomorrow for dinner. Why? Because actually it's a low heat and also the meat become like butter when you cook it. Do you make it with lamb or do you make it with yeah, what do you make it with? Yeah. Thum, like uh, garlic, a lot of olive oil, the mluchia, but uh, crushed in powder that you mix with olive oil, and then you just let it cook. Actually, you add the meat the next day. You know, so let's say, for example, I start to, to that eight, I let it cook until 1 a.m. or midnight, I leave it to rest, and tomorrow at 3 p.m., I start recooking from 3 up to 8, like at the lowest fire you can put. Wow, and, and is it rest. like lamb on the bone or is it boneless yeah. or how does it work? No, yeah, I mean boneless, boneless. It would just be gone, yeah. wouldn't it? No? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah so exactly. it's just That's like it very shredded. Yeah. I think only Tunisian people love this. I've never heard of making it this way. One day I invite you, you come to the house and I make you some uh, Tunisian mluchia. And then I make the, I know how to do the Palestinian mluchia as well. So but the Palestinian mluchia is so easy, like. It is. It is really easy. Palestinian yeah. food is generally easy. It, it can be time-consuming, but it's... I had yeah. to learn it yeah, after I got married. Me, it's, uh, my mother-in-law, she sent me the recipe. I sent her my Tunisian dish, and she sent me a Palestinian dish, and we... Uh, I said, ah, I forgot to put this. I'm like, oh, I didn't have this meat today, so... We're going to have to cook you some Iraqi food. You do the Tunisian, okay. and we okay. do it that way. You know, you know, we had a project in the studio. I never did. Actually, I did it once in January. I did a breakfast. It was uh, called LCD Cooks for You. So we invite people in the studio and I never made it. But in January for Alco's Art Fest, Al Sarkal asked me to, to do a breakfast for uh, 25 journalists. So it was fun. So we did uh, a big chachuca when I was a... Uh, oh, Tunisian yum. Chachuca. Yeah, it was How fun. amazing. I love chachuca. Oh. Yeah, the Tunisian one is the best. I can send you a video if you want. I did a tutorial. Ted. Oh, please. I would no. love that. I want to make your chachuca. Yeah. Okay, it's easy. I mean, you, you know how to make the shakshuka. Yeah, yeah, but what makes the Tunisian one different? Uh, because we invented it. So I think... That's I thought it was Moroccan. Everybody's confusing. Yeah, no, 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 it's not Moroccan. Look, uh, Sally, there's one thing you need to understand is Morocco, what they're good at is marketing. Okay? That's the only thing. Tunisia, have you ever been to Tunisia? 
No. Okay, so exactly. Have you been to Morocco? No, I have not. No. But people they usually go first to Morocco and then Tunisia. And exactly. Two friends of Dima they came with us this summer to Tunisia for ten days, I think. And one of them used to work for one of the biggest like travel blog in the U.S. And she came for on holiday, not to work. And she was like, "Wow, I didn't even think for one second this would be like that." She was blown away. But us Tunisian people were a small country, not too much people. So like you know, we don't want to share too much with people. So we invite like VIP. Come, I give you a pass. Come to my country. So when you come, you know, like you've been really invited. You know, like and we're really happy to have you. That's that's the thing. Properly invited. I like it. Yeah, it's true, yeah. and that's the thing. And I think since 2011, I think since the Arab Spring, that's what Tunisia is known for. And I think it needs to to go back to being known for a lot more than that as well. We have an amazing architecture like site. We have amazing food. Our yeah. people like I just give you a short story and then the two friends of my wife we went in a in a place called Sidi Boussaï. It was the last day of the holiday and then from Tunisia they were going to Egypt and then she was going to Poland and then going back to the States after a month and a half and she lost her phone. We were almost going home and they were like I cannot find my phone. We look in the car we can find it. We come back to where they were sitting before I came back with the car from the parking. We couldn't find it. Then we try to find my phone. We see the phone is in a cafe in Sidi Boussaï. We look. We cannot ask people. Hey, do you have a phone? And then we go. We go back to a shop. You know, because on the application it tells you maybe it's 100 meters away from where you see it. We go to a shop. We check the shop where she bought some souvenir, and we check the camera. And then we see that she has a phone on the back of her pocket, and leave the store with it. So we know it's not. It must be in the cafe. So the guy he has a shop in the touristic area in the summer, and everybody is like, "I'm coming with you." He closes his shop. When you still have tourists, it's night time, so that's when you make his money. He closed his shop. There is a cops in the in the street. He said, "Kilani, come with me." There is this girl. She forget her. She lost her phone. And so we go back to the cafe. The guy is like, "This is my cousin, his wife." I'm like, "She's not my wife. <laughs> his wife. She lost her phone." Can you turn off the music? We're gonna do the application. We can make it ring. The guy see the guy who has the phone. He see the cops. He see like we're looking for something. And then we see the phone moving out of the cafe, leaving the street. And then we follow him. We run. We arrive in the roundabout. There is another cop. He's like, "What's going on?" Okay, guys. And then you see like three, four cops running all around, you know, to find who is the person. And then finally, we found the phone. You know, imagine just to tell you like how important we are with our guests. I you love know, it. Uh, I love that story. I'm just imagining the visual of everyone like this mob going after I, this phone. I just regret I didn't film this because that I was know. Amazing. <laughs> wow, wow. an amazing story how we found it. It is always without a doubt about the power of people with the incredible El Cid. Once travel opens up again, it really is time to explore the hidden gems like Tunisia. Another Tunisian gem is the singer-songwriter Amal Mathlouthi. Here she is with the breathtaking Holm or Dream. لو كنت مغمضين
والقار من واقع ناصر يعبث بكل من ابني دنيا علت فيها اسوار طغيان ساحقها فينا احلاما احلام وعم الظلام Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10am.